Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in once again. Today we had Jared Maynard on the podcast. He's a physiotherapist currently working in Canada, and he's also a lead member of the clinical athlete. talked about the qualities that make a good clinician great, such as communication, soft skills, listening to your patient, and more. So enjoy. So what's your story, man? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, it started on a cold, rainy day in 1990. <laughs> Um, I'm Jared Maynard. I'm a, I'm a physiotherapist in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. For anyone who doesn't know where that is, it's about two hours west of Toronto. So registered physio working at a clinic called Depth Physiotherapy, Depth Training and Physiotherapy. Um, I'm also the, or a provider and the clinical athlete continuing education coordinator. Um, and I'm the owner operator of Unbreakable Strength Online, which is an online coaching company for strength athletes. And then on top of that, I'm married. We've got twin two-year-old girls and we're expecting a third one in a couple weeks so nice. busy with a lot of good stuff you're a busy guy huh yeah can't complain though man it's all good <laughs> stuff really truly how'd you get involved with clinical athlete so back 2015 i won't i won't belabor with too many of the details around my injury but i had a hamstring injury uh just deadlifting in the gym it wasn't anything super crazy but i finished physio school rehabbed it myself to the best of my ability with some some success i guess but it was still kind of troublesome. So I hooked up with uh, with Quinn online for some, some virtual consults. So we saw each other every so often as needed. And then around or some at some point in the time frame, I started to compete in powerlifting and was still having some issues. I'd moved from one clinic to another or moved from one city to another. And then as part of what I was trying to do to attract more people into the clinic that I was now at, I put together a seminar to try to you know, give people some good useful information on pain science and also just invite them to come talk to me and build some relationships that way. So had a consult with Quinn at the end of December of what would have had to be 2017. And I said, Hey man, I put this together for my clinic. Could you use it for clinical athlete? Could it be a webinar or something? Quinn said, yeah, send it over, took a look at it. And it was heavily based off of um, some stuff from Greg Lehman. And then what was at the time, the scientific principles of, um, of rehab. I think it's what it was. Sorry. S P O S R. Scientific principles of strength and rehab or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Ray and Derek miles were teaching that mm-hmm. course for clinical athlete. So yeah, Quinn's like, Hey, this is good. Do you want to record it as a webinar? And I said, oh, sure, I guess. So we did that. And then Derek Sawyer, who's the co-founder of clinical athlete and very much behind the scenes, he asked if I wanted to come on board and start facilitating webinars, setting those up. And that role just sort of grew over that year. And I've been, I've been working with them ever since. And it's honestly, the team at Clinical Athlete is, is one of the best teams, if not the best team that I've ever worked with. You've got some smart guys there. We do, which is part of why I was surprised they wanted me to come on board. Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you probably are familiar with the, the feeling of imposter syndrome. Like when they asked yeah. me to come on and do some stuff. I, I was just the kid who was happy to be picked for the team, you know, but <laughs> We've, uh, I think we've really gelled as a team and we really uh, play off each other's strengths and cover each other's weaknesses. And yeah, we're just working on some good stuff. That's awesome. So I'm curious as to, let, let's say back to the hamstring injury um, and you're really big into growth. I'm assuming if you're a clinical athlete, you're constantly learning and you're, like, you're trying to implement new things. Yeah. Uh, so from that standpoint to now, how would your rehabilitation process look? It's a really good question, actually. I think... I think the backbone of it would probably be the same because at the time that I linked up with Quinn, I had competed once in powerlifting and I had tried to compete again. I had signed up for two meets that were like six weeks apart, which is something that I would not recommend. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. You could tell I was real new to that sport. So second meet did not go well. Hamstring symptoms flared right up and I had to pull out of that one. So um, it was sort of, not sort of, it was very eye opening for me when I started working with Quinn and he really showed me how we could use the structure of my training as the main vehicle to drive rehab. Mm-hmm. How I didn't necessarily have to be all of these super specific, like hamstring, slow eccentric 
special exercises, although you know, we did do some slow tempo stuff that were heavy, um, heavily loaded the eccentrics. But basically, in a nutshell, he showed me how we could use the thing that I was already doing, the thing that I cared the most about, mm-hmm. and then just tailor it to meet me where I was at, where I wasn't having these constant flare-ups of the symptoms, and then understand the, the principles that went into that enough so that we could modify and uh, progress it over time. So I guess going back to your question, if I were left my own devices, I probably would have taken me a lot longer to get there if I got there at all. Probably would have wasted a lot more time and been more frustrated. Um, but post-Quinn era, uh, the backbone would have been the same. I might have used different language if I were working with somebody else or even talking to myself about the issue. The language that I use might be different or even how in-depth I got into certain ideas. And that's just a pragmatic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that's maybe what I'd say to that. So I've got two questions about the injury. Number one, what type of injury was it like a strain or like a tendinopathy? And number two, how long did it take you to fully recover from it? Good question. Let's start with the second one. I'm not really fully recovered yet. I'm a lot better now than I used to be. But this was August 2015. I was pulling a sumo deadlift at like 82% or something. It wasn't super heavy. Um, and then just about halfway up, felt a tear in proximal left hamstring. So as near as we could figure, it was a proximal hamstring tendinopathy um, or tendon strain, but it became tendinopathy. And so it's a lot better now. Um, there are mechanical things that will trigger it, like the lockout of a squat, a squat low bar, and that top portion, top third, top quarter, That's if I'm going to feel it, it's probably going to be there, especially if I'm pitching forward, if my quads are tired and starting to shift into my hips a little bit more. And then deadlifts somewhat as well, sort of halfway up to the to lockout, and velocity seems to be relevant too. Um, again, so much better now than it used to be, and that's one, stubbornness or persistence, whichever word we want to use, and just getting getting work in and hopefully well facilitating some sort of adaptation and uh, developing more strategies as far as being able to, to manage those symptoms as they flare up. Uh, so yeah, I think we got both questions there. Proximal hamstring tendinopathy on the left side and better, but still something that I got to be aware of now. Do you think you will ever, ever recover like 100% from it? Or do you have the expectations that you might have flare-ups here and there? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I'll probably still have, I'll probably have persistent or I'll probably continue to have some sort of symptoms in the area, some soreness and pain here and there for, for a long time. If it goes away entirely, fantastic. I'm not really holding my breath. And it's one of these interesting things. We could obviously go down the rabbit hole as far as we wanted to around pain, but I think it's, I've come to terms now much better with the prospect of having some sort of symptoms. Um, and I know I'm not alone, not necessarily just with proximal hamstring tendinopathies, but just aches, pains, or previous injuries altogether when it comes to, to athletes and not even just strength athletes. We all have, or most of us probably have some sort of thing that we have to deal with. Um, so I'm more focused on making sure that I've got applicable and yeah, applicable and sustainable strategies to, to manage that. Um, and it also helps to temper my expectations around how a particular training session or block or competition might go. Um, and since my expectations are tempered, I end up being usually more satisfied with the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like, so this is kind of like a large fork in the road. Like if we were dealing with the general population, we can give them these rehab uh, interventions and they wouldn't really be in, I wouldn't say not in pain completely, but they would resolve pretty, pretty successfully versus somebody like yourself who's trying to reach that top end of strength that keeps on receiving these flare ups. So it seems like the intervention process might be a little bit different. And my question here would be, uh, you've been dealing with this about, you said 2015, right? Yep. Yep. 2015 to now 2020. Uh, That's a long time. And you know, you would assume that the tissue is fully healed now. So Mm -hmm. do you, do you think it's purely psychological for you or what do you think? Well, I think that's the million dollar question and it's probably difficult to say. I never ended up getting any imaging. And the reason for that was one, it takes a long time or it can take a long time, just the way the healthcare system is up here in Canada. Um, And two, it probably wouldn't have changed the decisions that I made or what I typically do. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so when it comes to the literature on tendons, we, I think we, where we are right now is that we understand that they, there is tissue turnover, like they, they can heal, but they're just really slow to do that. So it's been, it's coming up on five years in August. It'll be five. Um, is there a possibility that some of the tissues haven't completely healed some of the tendon fibers? I guess so. Um, I think there's definitely uh, an ingrained psychological aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And I want to break that down even further uh, when it comes to movements like the deadlift, like that's probably the, the thing that I've had to work at building trust in the most mm-hmm. followed closely by squats just because deadlifts, especially sumo deadlifts, how I heard it in the first place and what would typically aggravate it. So purely psychological, I don't think so. And that's just probably, I'm going to answer that just because pain seems to be hard to, to really classify into one or the other. But for me personally, and then also for people that I work with, I tend to try to root this in a question of what, what decision or conclusion will be the most useful moving forward and allow me or the client to make smart decisions and and be able to manage the overall situation as best they can. Mm -hmm. Did I answer the question or I might've gone? No, 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 that's perfect. And, you know, and uh, I'm just curious, you you said that you had to psychologically, you know, get over that, that barrier. Um, what are some tangible things that listeners could be like, could use right now to get over their psychological barrier? For sure. Um, I think that doing your best to assess what sort of triggers might be present is going to be a big one. Um, and then followed closely by trying to, I guess, temper expectations as much as possible. And now what I want to make sure I'm clear, people know I'm not saying is that you should just, I'm not saying you should just give up and like, you're always going to be in pain. Everything sucks. Let's be nihilists together. Um, saying more that pain can be tricky in some situations, depending on a few factors can be harder to get past than we might figure, but principles still hold true, right? So if we can figure out what sort of factors seem to be relevant, like for me, it's position and velocity um, and overall like training load. If I'm deep into a training block, that can be a little bit more touchy for me. Um, and also like bigger life factors, like I said at the start, I've got my hands in a few different cookie jars. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot on my plate. So the last few weeks I've been feeling a lot more fatigued than I did say two months ago. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be relevant if I get some, some symptoms, which I have been. So yeah, bringing it back down to actionable things, try to find triggers. If you can, if you're having trouble with that, try to hook up with somebody who ideally is, is well-versed in, um, the literature as it relates to pain and injury and ideally the activity or activities that you care about um, and try to put together a, a game plan that is that particularly puts you in the driver's seat as the person who has the power to make these decisions. And then uh, probably expect that the process is going to take longer than we want it to just because unfortunately that's how things tend to shake out, but uh, be persistent, keep showing up, try to be creative and find ways to turn what seems like a crappy day into a little bit of a win. And if you stack those on top of each other long enough, you'll, you'll get pretty far, I think. So how do you, you like, we know setting up expectations is like huge, even though like on the first visit expectations should be set. And I don't know if you work with gen pop or more with powerlifters, but have you ever had the, have you ever been in the position that an athlete, for example, wants to be pain-free and like, even though you tell them like, Hey, some flare ups here and there will be normal. And have they been like, Oh no, but I want to be pain free. Like, yep. how does that conversation look like? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it can be challenging sometimes. So yes, definitely has happened. And I work with both. So in the clinic, I, I work with Jen pop. I do see a few strength athletes there. And then as it relates to coaching, that's mostly strength athletes, mostly powerlifters. Um, yeah, there are, there have been lots of instances where someone, I ask someone, Hey, what, what does success look like to you? What needs to happen by the end of all of this for you to say that we were successful? And they say, gotta be pain-free. I'm like, okay, cool. That's awesome. We're going to be working towards that for sure. Pain can be a little bit tricky. So are there other things that we can use in addition to that to use as sort of mile markers and to know that we're moving in the right direction? I'm like, nope, just want to be pain-free. <laughs> sweet (laughs) please get better fast Um, but but it doesn't always happen there are some instances or have been some instances where people are like hey i'm still hurting and what i want to say is like 
yeah, it's been a week. What did you think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm usually more tactful than that. And it's, it's, I try to lean into the conversation and maybe unpack more about what they were expecting. Because what, what I really get from those instances or those conversations is that I didn't do a good enough job, A, understanding what they wanted, or B, communicating that, uh, you know, this is maybe what's more likely to happen. And in event or in, yeah, in the event of a B or C happening, here's what we're going to do in response to all of them. So, I mean, I won't go too far down the side tangent. Um, listening to people like Jocko Willink over the last year has really changed my life and, you know, without any degree of exaggeration. So he talks about extreme ownership. So I try not to, uh, let my frustration bubble over in those situations and just try to evaluate how I could have done better. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Sometimes people just drop off or I'm not able to help them out. And you know, that's unfortunate, but it happens. Uh, but I think the majority of the time there's something more or better that I could do to communicate with them and, you know, move them further along. So when it comes to the rehab process, do you concentrate more on function, pain, uh, ADLs or, Obviously, it depends on their goals, but what are some common themes that you focus on? Yeah, it, you're, you nailed it. I think it it really has to be rooted in what their goals are and what their story is. And at the end of the subjective interview, I'll talk about clinical work here, although the same can apply to, to coaching clients. <clears throat> After they tell me their story and what their background is and what they're hoping to get, and we dive into maybe the specifics around aggravating, easing factors, all that stuff. Then I'll ask them what they think is going on. You know, if they have any idea what the problem is or the diagnosis might be. And sometimes they've been told by other people what they think it is. And that's an opportunity for me to, you know, either say, yeah, I think that's the same thing. Or, I th- or say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Given these things, it might also be this thing. And this is why I think that's the case. The next question is what, whether they have any thoughts about what we need to do. And that makes me aware of any expectations that they have right there, <clears throat> you know, and, and that's been a life-saving, life-saving question for me uh, because that also helps to direct what I do in the first session and then maybe what I build into the next few days or a few weeks. The second last question I ask them is what success looks like to them, you know, what they need to end up being able to do or what needs to happen for them to feel happy with everything. And the last one is what their expectations are for that day, for that first session. Um, I usually ask, what do we need to do by the time that you leave here or by the time that we finish the call for you to feel like today was a really good, productive first session? And based on the answers to those questions, then I'll try to, I'll try my best to address the things that they tell me they care about. So if being pain-free is the one thing that they care about, I'll acknowledge that I'm going to be doing my best to, to help you become pain-free or to manage your pain symptoms. I'll also add in a caveat that pain's tricky and I wish I could guarantee that you'll be pain-free by this time. I think you'll be feeling better by this time and then even more so in this interval. Um, but you know, I want to, f- I follow up the fact that I can't promise that with a contingency plan, yeah. right? Because if anybody, if we switch places and I were that person being told like, well, I think you're going to feel better, but meh, um, I'm not going to feel too too great about that interaction, right? Because we're trying to be honest and forthcoming, but also show the client that we're worthy of their trust and that they are making a good decision by putting their trust in us. So having a plan, I think, is a, an important thing there. I really do t- try to focus on on function and things that ultimately lead them to doing what they care about doing. Right. And Again, talking about clinical interactions, most times that I see them, most most sessions, I'll try to say something that points to their performance on the day or their overall progress and how that leads closer to where they want to be. Like, hey, you had a really tough time picking up that 20-pound kettlebell off the stool last time, but you're picking it up off the floor today. Like, you want to pick up your grandkids. Your grandkid only weighs 30 pounds. Like, we're getting real close there. Um and it's just another way to, I think, subtly nudge them along and let them know that their time and their effort is, is well-placed because it's in line with what they care about. How do you find the, the balance? Because uh, I, I see that there's a lot of like common, let's say, strain sprain or it doesn't really matter about the anatomical like, thing because let's just say it's a strain of, of one muscle or the other. It's all going to be helped with load management. 
And uh, so maybe like, you know, we know that diagnostic or diagnosis can be placebo or I'm sorry, nocebo. Yeah. Uh, I was just curious, uh, how do you navigate that space where you, you give them a diagnosis, but you don't nocebo them, but also you don't give them a diagnosis and you seem like you don't really know. How, how, you see what I'm saying? How do you play yeah. around with that, that space? For sure. Uh, let me start by saying I spent a lot of time in that second category where I think I was too noncommittal. Um, now it was born of a, I think a, a good desire. Cause like you said, I, I didn't want to be that guy that was noceboing a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would be like, eh, it kind of seems like this and like, you know, stuff. <laughs> and it, it didn't really have a great impact all the time. So I think that if we, I think we could be more comfortable talking about things that we've got a really good um, backing of evidence for from the literature. So say tendinopathy. Um, someone has signs and symptoms that point to tendinopathy. Now I'm going to tell them like, I think it's a tendon issue. I can't be entirely sure because I'd need an image to like really be positive that we see those tendon changes, but that's usually not part of the conversation just because it doesn't really lead us anywhere super productive, I don't think. But I'll say, hey, it's a, I think it's tendon issue because of X, Y, and Z. Um, okay, so this is what we know about tendons. The tissues can take a while to to heal up based on the research. That said, tissue healing and symptom resolution, they're not always one and the same. There's a really good chance, I think, that over the next insert time frame here, you know, two, three weeks, we're starting to see this improvement in your symptoms. And this is what I want to do to get there. Past that, if we're talking about the next, say, six to eight weeks, I'm thinking that we're moving. Are you going to be ready to do A, B, and C, you know, which are going to be more intense than what I think we should do right now. Um, but when we're there, we're going to be doing these things. Here's what we'll be looking forward to, to let us know that we're on the right track. And then here's where I think we'll ultimately get. And I find a lot of value in using phrases like, I think it seems, um, I bet, you know, things like that, because it, to me, at least seems like there it is, right? It seems like um, I'm able to say something directly, not promise that it's going to be that way because I can't predict the future. Obviously none of us can It'd be sweet if we could though, um, <laughs> but still give them a solid direction forward. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the hope is that they walk away from that session feeling like they know what's going on hopefully I've said it in clear enough terms and repeated it enough times that they could go tell other people, yeah, this is what's going on and it kind of sucks right now, but here's what I have in front of me to do. Here's what we're doing next time. And here's what we're going to be doing ultimately. That, does that make sense? No. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm curious, does this dialogue change between a gen pop and a power lifter? Could you be like maybe more crude to the power lifter? Like, <laughs> yeah, dude, you blew out your hammy, but we'll get you better. You know, how, <laughs> how does that change? I, I think it probably has more to do, I think probably yes, but I think it has more to do with the personality of the yeah. person. Mm-hmm. I've uh, I've been real blunt with, uh, with Gen Pop people. Do you guys cuss on this podcast at all? Yeah, fire away. Like, <laughs> this is really fucked up right now, but don't worry. We're, we're going to do this and we're going to get you right back in there. Versus, you know, say Gen Pop again, someone who's more timid, seems a little bit less comfortable. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm going to mm-hmm. think mirroring them, matching their, their verbal and nonverbal communication cues and using more encouraging language. I think a big difference between gen pop and, and powerlifting conversations is just probably the, the technicality of the language mm-hmm. and the inclusion of um, a discussion around maybe what training looks like and how those variables can be manipulated to drive the changes that we want to see mm-hmm. with grandma Ethel who just wants to be able to go for walks around the block. I'm probably keeping things really simple, more focused around movements that she does throughout the day. Like we're probably talking about having her do a few times throughout the day, some sit to stands off of her chair using arm support or whatever. But uh, you know, the power lifter who wants to be able to compete in six months and yeah, I'm talking about, um, different variations that they're using, what their their training approach tends to be, all those little sort of nuts and bolts that we can get into. And uh, this is where I think having a professional, uh, a healthcare professional or a coach to work with who, who can speak that language mm-hmm. well um, goes a long way um, on a somewhat related but different note. Like I do, I'm not a dancer, never have been, likely never be a dancer, 
but through working with a few dancers, I picked up things from them and done some, some research myself. Do you guys know who Jake Manley is? Never heard of him. No, he's a, an athletic trainer out in um, Virginia. You should check him out. He's uh, got two Instagram accounts. Main one is TMD underscore the movement docs. Oh, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. That, great guy. that page. <laughs> that, exactly, that's him. <laughs> Lots of memes and strongman and Chobani. Yeah. Smart, though. Very smart guy. So he works with a lot of performing artists, uh, dancers and um, musicians, that sort of thing. So anyway, we were talking with him on the podcast. I was saying that I picked up enough terminology where if I have a dancer come in, I had it in, happened in the clinic not too long ago. Um, she talked about how she had knee pain and I asked her, when does it hurt? Does it hurt when you're doing a demi plie or a grand plie? Mm. There's enough where like, there's a little light bulb moment. Like, okay, okay. This, this guy knows a little something. She doesn't know that I've just exhausted my dance vocabulary. I got nothing left. <laughs> but it, it doesn't matter because now she trusts me more. That's phenomenal. So it's that, just the key yeah. words. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. Like, we know that communication is key. Um, yeah. So besides communication, in your opinion, what qualities make a good doctor a great one? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah, that's a really good one. <clears throat> I think probably top of my list is empathy. Um, having empathy and being able to express that. So when it comes to trying to make sure that things are concise and I don't get too far off into the weeds here, (laughs) but we have to, I think we have to really care because I think we probably all have some sort of experience where we've worked with somebody, whether for a long time or just in passing, who really doesn't seem like they care a lot. They're just showing up, collecting a paycheck, Maybe they're having a bad day, but we're just not getting a great vibe from them. It's unlikely that we're walking away from that encounter feeling really good about it. And we've probably also had some sort of experience with somebody else who seems like this is why they get up in the morning. Like we're the person, the only person in the world to them at that moment. Like they're so excited about it. And we probably leave from that experience feeling jacked up. And at the very least, we feel probably listened to and cared for and guided effectively. Right now, I'm not saying we all have to suddenly become motivational speakers, but I think just starting internally um, with regular reflection about why we as coaches and as healthcare professionals are doing what we're doing and whether we're doing our best to communicate that care and that importance to the people that we're working with, that's probably a good place to start. Um, And then probably listening more than you talk is another good one. Um, And being able to modify your verbal and nonverbal communications to make people feel comfortable and learning how to build rapport and get people to feel more comfortable and, and trust you, you know, those probably count for a whole lot. And that's just relating to like building relationships. Really. Yeah. We haven't talked about technical knowledge because that, that matters too. But I'd, I'd argue that technical knowledge is not usually lacking in a lot of people it's yep. probably more so in that first category yeah. that, that brings me to the do you think that we could like let's say somebody is not empathetic by nature do you think it's something do you think it's more so they're just not in the right field of work or do you think they just never learned what empathy is can we learn empathy i guess is what my question is yeah it's a good one i think so now i also think that we've got different personalities different temperaments dispositions that sort of thing Disclaimer, not a psychologist, not even close. So no one take this as gospel. But I think that there are some people who are just well-suited to certain lines of work. You know, that's not really a new concept. That's probably why we find ourselves drawn to certain fields and, you know, certain Mm -hmm. people, right? So I'm thinking back even just to to my my class in school. There are some people who are phenomenally empathetic, great, uh, like very sociable kind of people who do well at a big party and also the kind of people that you could just hang out with you know, just two or three people and just have a great conversation with and feel comfortable either way. There were some other people who just were so, so socially awkward that I, I cringe thinking about how those clinical interactions must have gone. <laughs> you know, and super smart, but just not particularly gifted, at least innately, when it comes to communicating empathy or just communication in general. I do think you can learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some books that come to mind or reason. Yeah. Some books are um, like how to win friends and influence people. And one. yeah, I, I like that one a lot. And I read one recently, never split the difference. 
Mm. You heard of that one? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's about, for those people who aren't familiar, Never Split the Difference is by Chris Voss. Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People is by Dale Carnegie, if I remember right. Um, But Chris Voss used to be the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. So the book is all about negotiation, um, but it's hugely applicable to every aspect of life, really, and certainly when it comes to clinical and coaching work. So he talks about tactical empathy, you know, um, and using labels to demonstrate uh, our understanding of how people might feel and using calibrated questions to get them to feel comfortable explaining more about particular things. So it, it appeals to me because I'm, I'm very type A. I'm, I'm neurotic. I like knowing the strategy behind things and being a bit of a brain ninja or thinking that I am anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I've noticed even just in the last couple of months, talking with my wife, talking with people at work, that I'm able to apply those strategies or those concepts and have more of the effects that I want to have. So that's a really long-winded answer to your question. I think we can learn it. I think some people are probably better at it off the hop than others. Mm -hmm. And some people may not ever be as good as others. But um, if we're in, certainly in the healthcare or or coaching worlds, that's an important thing to keep working on all the time. The soft skills, man, which are the hardest ones. That's it. That's exactly it, man. Soft. Soft my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I think every single time like when they call it soft skills i'm like they're the hardest skills to develop i don't still don't know why we call them soft skills but hey it is what it is is. so besides from reading and surrounding yourself with the right people how would you say we could develop more of the soft skills is it just by practicing it i think practicing is a big part of it um so reading like we said that's probably a great place to start if someone feels lost and doesn't really know you know, what step one might be. I think that we can also do ourselves a favor by watching clinicians as well as interviewers, uh, radio hosts, um, public speakers, anybody who seems to be a very good, effective, and also attractive communicator. Um, Just watch them speak and try to think a little bit critically about what it is about that person or those people that you find to be attractive and, and to be effective. So you might also look at the same people in different settings and depending on who they're talking to or what the setting is, they might modify their, their vocal tone or their volume of speech, how fast they're speaking, their not, or their body language, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. or even the language that they're using. Um, Going back to never split the difference. Mirroring is not a new concept, but um, it's one thing that I try to do in the clinic when someone uses particular words to describe symptoms or to describe anything, I'll try to use those same words again. And it's a subtle thing. People probably don't even notice a lot of the time, but at the very least it helps them to feel more comfortable because they're seeing similarities. And just at a base level as people, as humans, we feel more comfortable generally when we're around people that are similar to us in some sort of respect. Right? So yeah, just start paying attention to, to, those or to different people all around you. And if you start doing that enough, it'll be easy to, or easier at least to pick out the, the technical pieces and then start to think about how you can apply them yourself. And then I think um, regular reflection on how we're doing or how our interactions go with clients, with our family members, friends, significant others, whatever. <clears throat> if we have a practice like journaling or we, just make it a habit every day or every so often to think about, well, here's what I wanted to have happen. Here's what, what I did and here's how it went. Was that on point? What could I have done better? That sort of thing. <clears throat> Pardon me. That goes a long way. And then a little shameless plug. Um, resources like the Clinical Athlete Forum. We've got lots of resources and discussions around these very things. And the Kalu Summit, the joint venture between mm-hmm. Clinical Athlete and Level Up, Um, that's one of the main reasons that we wanted to create it uh, because there didn't seem to be enough resources we thought that blended the technical proficiency that we need as clinicians and the skills to communicate with people and to, to human really well, you know, shout out Zach Gabor and Steph Allen for that term. But uh, yeah, those are some ideas. Yeah. We've both taken the level up initiatives cohorts and it has really helped because 
if you rewind a year uh, back into my life, I was this guy that only shared like facts. Oh, this is science. This is science, and you're wrong and right. <laughs> and like after taking the course, I'm like, I was doing it completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though, man. I mean, to have such a dramatic change in a relatively short period of time that speaks to the impactfulness of the the mentorship. Yeah, they are making a change. Oh yeah. Uh, a common theme that I'm trying to live by uh, is I don't know if you've read, if you've read the book The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I, I think not, but I should have. The, yes, the habit number two, I think it is. I recommended it to him. He's actually reading. I think uh, awesome. is seek first to understand and then to be understood. Uh, yeah, it's just it's huge. Like, it, and it'll take you a long way when it comes to the coaching and clinical uh, reasoning. Oh, couldn't agree more, man. I mean. Just, it's kind of crazy to think about how many conflicts or arguments or misunderstandings come from not doing due diligence um, when it comes to trying to understand what the other person is is saying as best we can, you know. And yeah, I think that's a great principle, and it probably makes everyone's lives easier in the long run. Maybe not in the short term because it can be hard to really figure out what someone means to say mm-hmm. or what's behind the words, but if you become more proficient at it, everybody wins. So now that, were you going to say? I was just say, have, have you, like maybe just me, but have you ever noticed, or maybe just my interactions is like, when you seek to maybe get clarification of what somebody says, some people have this innate response to be almost offended. Like, why are you, why are you questioning? (laughs) Have you ever done that with a patient where you list, you wanted more clarification and they almost Mm -hmm. were off put by that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And excuse me. I think I couldn't really tell you why that happens. Maybe it's their past experience. Maybe it was, it was my word choice. Maybe it was my tone. Maybe it was just the, the day they were having. Um, but I think I, I can't draw in particular examples right now, but I think that in those instances where I'm kind of taken aback by their reaction, that's a cue for me to pull back a little bit and try to deescalate as best I can and say, you know, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean any offense by it. I asked that just so I can really understand better what you're saying so that I can give you the best sort of uh, advice possible to get you where I want to be. Actually, one example comes to mind. Um, the second clinic I worked at, I was taking over uh, an exiting therapist caseload as she went on mat leave. And there's one client who had been seen for a very long time, like, I won't get into the specifics, but mm-hmm. over medicalized in my, my opinion. And there were some psychosocial things going on there too. But uh, I knew she was very particular. She was always in on Friday at 4.30. And Lord help you if you were late. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I saw her for the first time. I'd met her once beforehand at the front desk just so she knew who she was going to be seeing when the transition happened. And... I said, one of the things that I usually said at that point in time, which was, you know, I want to, at some point, I want you to, to not have to see me. And she took that as me trying to get rid of her. Uh, and she said, if you're going to be trying to push me off, like we're not going to work together. And I was shocked. This was not what I thought I said, but what she heard was something different. Right. So I, I backpedaled a little bit like, Oh, that's, that's not what I mean to say at all. I just mean to simply say that I want to work together to do whatever we need to so that you feel like you've got the freedom to do what you want and that you don't necessarily have to see me. I'll be here if you need me like for however long you need. And then it got to a point in conversation where she was saying something, she was still a little bit defensive. And I said, I think we're saying the same things. Um, but I think we're just saying it a little bit differently. And I probably, I told her, I, I probably said it poorly to begin, but uh, going back to your question. Yeah, it definitely happens. Sometimes they're surprising. And that's where I think, having those, those strategies uh, to fall back on, being able to demonstrate empathy and ask good um, calibrated questions, that sort of stuff ends up being useful. Isn't that the beauty of the soft skills? You think you, you have them down and then you just meet the new boss, you know? Okay. <laughs> it's exa- all the time, man, all the time. Just when you think you got to figure it out, yeah, you get a real good kick to the teeth and realize that you got a lot to learn. <laughs> How do you deal with the conversation with, some clients, either gen pop or powerlifters, that come to you that are already nocebo. Because, uh, mm-hmm. for example, we have an online uh, uh, client, uh, coaching client. Uh, he's a professional soccer athlete, but 
we can see that he's super nocebo. Like yeah. even he he mentions like some sort of swinging cap or asymmetries or this and that. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you handle those conversations? Piece by piece, and when it seems appropriate is is the beginning of my answer. So. Yeah, I've run into a number of those situations and sometimes they've been, I've been fortunate enough to have a student with me at the time. Usually I'll have a conversation at the beginning of a student placement to say, hey, if we run into these situations, they just watch me for cues or if you're stuck, defer to me because we'll figure out when is a good time to maybe come back to these and what, what battles we got to fight. Because um, there are some things that a person might say or some narratives they've been told, which in that instance, in the bigger picture, this, that's just not the hill I want to die on that day, you know? Mm-hmm. So on top of that, it's very unlikely that I'm going to be successful in changing their minds, even in, in a small way, if they don't like me, if I don't have some sort of rapport built up, if they don't trust me. Um, so I got to work on that first. <clears throat> um, so what I tend to do, if there are narratives that they're hinting out or they say explicitly like, yeah, my physio before you told me that my, my vertebra is out of place and my hips are rotated poorly. And like, I got flat feet. That's why my pinky hurts or whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make notes of the things that I might want to come back to. If there's something big that I think is going to be a roadblock sooner than later, that might be the thing that I start to gently broach first. So if, if that hypothetical person wants to to be lifting heavy but they don't think they can be in the gym because of their poorly rotated pelvis i might start asking some more questions about okay um did your previous physio give you any things to do to start to address that so you can do the thing that you want to do um and get an idea as to where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and the extent of what they've been told because it's backfired on me many times where i've said something and i haven't probed the background well enough and like well my physio said this, this, and this. I'm like, Shit, I got to fight through that one too. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've eroded some of that trust that I've been trying to build, right? So trying to keep things relatively concise. I'm trying to build trust first. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a, a topic that I want to come back to, I'll say, hey, maybe that would actually be a really great thing to talk about. Um, I'd love to hear more about what you've been told. And then if you're comfortable with that, I can share, you some of the, share with you some of the information that we have in the research and how I think it might apply to this situation so we can get you where you want to go. It all, I think, should be tied back around to how it's going to help them survive and thrive and get where they want to go. And then, you know, it gives them permission, or sorry, it allows them to give me permission to give them that information. Mm -hmm. You know, it's permission to educate, essentially. Uh, Some people don't care. Some people just don't want to hear about what the research has to say. They just want to feel better. And with those people, I'm probably not having those super deep conversations um, and as frustrating, frustrating as it is for me, sometimes I'm letting some of those narratives go. Mm-hmm. Thankfully for the majority of people, if, if they pick up on the fact that, or the idea that having that conversation with me is a safe thing to do, and it'll ultimately help them do what they want to do sooner and or better, they tend to be pretty open to that. Now that brings me to my next question where, you know, some people just don't want to hear it. Just like you said, you can throw the best, you know, research out there and they're like, look, I don't even care. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is this where you might employ maybe exercise as you don't directly say like, okay, I'm fixing this, but in your plant, the seed, like, okay, if I'm doing this, maybe the things in the past aren't really that true. hundred percent. Yeah, I I do that. Uh, Or I fall back to that for sure especially in situations where the person doesn't seem super open to discussing those ideas, but it seems very clear that they have these really troublesome roadblocky type narratives or beliefs. So then I'm probably not trying to plow through them, trying to work around them in some way. So again, provided that I've still got a good understanding of what they want to do for themselves uh, say they've got back pain and they are afraid to pick something up off the floor because it's going to, send their back out and they're going to be, you know, lying in bed for a week because that's happened in the past. And their physio said that before. Um, Maybe I'm just getting them to lie on their back on the table and try to bring one knee to their chest and the other knee and ask them how that feels. Oh, that's fine. Oh, that's awesome. Like that's really good hip movement. Got some pelvic movement and there's going to be a little bit of back movement there too. So that's fantastic. We're looking really good. And then maybe I'm trying to rock back uh, on, on all fours on the table or something. 
just as a hypothetical example. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we're picking something up off the plinth, like super high, they're barely bending to get it, but trying to build their confidence and their ability to, to do that. Um, and then maybe not in that session, but over successive sessions, we're using the same weight and I'm just ever so slightly reducing the height of that plinth. And I'm never mentioning that I'm getting them to bend further so they can tie their shoes. Like it's not being said at all, especially if they show me that they're afraid of that phrasing or that idea. Sometimes, rarely, I get the nice gotcha moment of like, you're bending far enough to tie your shoes. Gotcha, you've been punked, you know? But um, more often than not, it's like, hey, you're moving just as far, if not further than you'd need to, to do this task that you're worried about before. Now, we don't have to do that thing. Just letting you know, if you want to, we're in a better spot now to do that. So, yeah, it gets to be kind of sneaky that way. Goes back to being the brain ninja, right? That's it. That's it. <laughs> you guys ever listened to Dane Cook? Yes. Do you remember that that bit that he had about brain ninjas? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where I'm taking that term. Yeah. I guess the the last and completely unrelated topic that I was just wanted to pick your brain about is you you have twins now and you're a relatively active person. How do you feel about your kids uh, participating in resistant exercises and stuff like that? Yeah. I'm, I'm very hopeful that they'll want to do that from an early age. Um, mm-hmm. And based on what I understand from the research around youth resistance training, uh, people, someone who's, who's much better suited to, to answer specifics is someone like Derek Miles. Cause that's, he has a great he, series. The part yeah. four. Yeah. Four, four parts. Exactly. Exactly. And he, he, he works in pediatrics and that sort of thing. Super smart guy in general. Also great taste in beer. Just want to say that. <laughs> uh, but based on the, what I understand in the literature, it's, it's safe to expose children to resistance training, but it's got to be appropriate um, according to their interest level, their, their motor controls, motor control abilities. Um, it's got to be dosed appropriately. And it's probably a better idea initially just to start with general things like get them to play and run and jump and like do some push-ups and like throw stuff. And then if they want to dabble more in the resistance training, maybe we start doing some, some goblet squats and whatever. And you can start to load them from there. But so long as it's appropriate to the person, they show an interest. Um, the load is managed well. Um, yeah, it seems like it's just fine. Mm-hmm. You know, those worries about stunting growth don't seem to be really necessary based on the research. Um, and the sooner that we start kids into physical activity and sustain that, the more likely they are to contain, continue that over time. Um you know, we're, we're doing pretty poorly as far as general physical activity yeah. standards now. So if we can skew that a little bit in a good direction, that's probably going to have good impacts down the road. Now, you being a father and then me always considering what I would do with my kids, uh, probably two different things. I'm just curious. So how do you either spark an interest or discover an interest in your kids when it comes to activity? Do you just schedule playtime? What do you have? What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. So we haven't scheduled playtime yet with them. I mean, they're they're young yet, but um, what we have done is just have them around when when I'm training. They like to come visit me in the basement. You know, that's that's a fun thing for them to do now, uh, which also gets very interesting when I've got lots of weight on the bar and I'm trying to do a particular thing, and I've got <laughs> two year old girls just running in front of me. Um, so yeah, no, but uh, they oh, it's been awesome to see. Um, over the last few months, as they see me do stuff, they want to try doing it. So they'll go in the squat rack. Be like, in squat rack. I'm like, yeah, you are in the squat rack. <laughs> and they'll start doing some air squats. I'm like, oh, let's do some more squats. I posted a video the other day of both kids lying down in the squat rack doing bench pressing just with their arms. You know, awesome. it's awesome. So, I, while it would make me very happy in a selfish way if they took an interest in in powerlifting, um, what I intend to do as they get older is be very encouraging um, and insist on some sort of activity, ideally including some sort of resistance training, the extent to which that that's up to them. They don't have to, um, they don't have to train exclusively resistance training for powerlifting on front of the barbell or whatever. Um, but I want to have the conversation with them about how or why it's important, why I think it's important and all the different ways they can do it. Um, we had, we did a webinar with uh, Nicole Sertica. You guys know her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, on long-term athletic development and early sports specialization. This webinar we did a while, a little while ago. It's if it 
I think it's already available in the clinical athlete forum and we got to make it available for other people to, to purchase. But she talked about sports sampling and how that was a thing that her dad did with her and her siblings, I think. So that's something that I, that I want to do in the future, just expose them to a few different things. Um, Cause for me, when I was a kid, I was, I was pretty chunky and I was the kid who on a beautiful summer day was in the basement watching TV and wanted nothing to do with being outside <laughs> My parents tried to get me involved in basketball, which I played for a season and sucked at and hated every moment of. <laughs> tried tennis lessons, tried like t-ball, like hated it all. But the thing that got me was uh, was kung fu, martial arts. And then okay. from there, I got back into basketball on my own terms and then played football in high school and then got into resistance training. So it kind of led me down that path. So long-winded answer, but I want to try to sample them or get them exposed to various sports and they do sometimes they do like sports camps over the span of a day or two days or a week okay. or something so that's a good convenient way to do it and then uh, hopefully just instill in them early on the idea that you know they can do these things that being in the gym being around heavy weight is you know not necessarily a scary thing and mm-hmm. they can do it if they want to it, it definitely shows the the true power of being placed in the right environment you know you don't have to say a single word, but just them mm-hmm. being around it, you know, they already know and they don't even have to second guess it. And that's yeah. huge, right? Yeah. Well, and on top of that too, as they get older, I, I hope and fully intend to have conversations with, with them like I do for my wife. God bless my wife. She has no interest whatsoever in powerlifting. It would be a slog to get her barbell training, although <laughs> it'll probably happen at some point because she's started to make that decision herself. But anyway... Um, even with, with her being that way, she understands how, um, how important training is for me and how, when I am able to train regularly, it leaves more in my tank to then give to her and the family and my clients, which then helps the family again. So being able to have that conversation with my girls and say, Hey, this is, this is why I I do this and why I do it so much. And this is what I've learned through it. Um, and this is what I hope for you. And if you ever want to train, you know, feel free to let me know because I'll happily do that with you. I'm hoping that'll make another, make a deeper connection as they're old enough to make that connection. Yeah. That was awesome. So honestly, like, cause this, this topic right here is right up my alley. I always consider it, you know, if yeah. you're, if, if you're a coach, you always like dream of making your kids the best they can be, you know? <laughs> yep. So, so thank you for giving me your insight on how you plan on working with your kids. Oh, my pleasure, man. And I'm I'm pretty new into it, so hopefully I've got some good ideas. But yeah, I'm sure my I'm sure I'll, I'll develop more expertise as I go. But uh, but yeah, man, happy to do it. Thanks for giving me a, a chance to to share my thoughts, and my ramblings. Oh, dude, there honestly, if those are ramblings, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to see what what else is. You know, <laughs> That's awesome. It's awesome. So, so Garrett, I know we only uh, talked about two out of the seven or eight questions we originally had, but it was a great conversation. So I want to thank you for taking your time to be on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Again, thanks for the, the invitation and taking your time to do this. My, I really appreciate it.